Oh, tremendous to see you this morning. Uh, I'd say Happy New Year, but we're talking about sorrow, so I'm very sorry it's the new year. No, it's not really. Uh, it's going to be a great year, but let's pray as we come to this uh, deep topic. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you you speak about all of the, the parts and realities of human life and existence, and so help us to be wise about sorrow, about when to be sad, about how to be sad well in a way that honours you uh, and help us to know what you're sad about. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we may not like it very much, uh, but one of the most difficult emotions we have to face in life and and deal with is sadness, sorrow, grief. Uh, We don't like being upset, do we? Anyone here like it, enjoy it? Uh, I mean, there are people who you wonder but uh, we, most of us don't. And we certainly don't like when, when other people see us upset. We hide it from them. But it's something that's absolutely normal to feel, whether it's a reaction to various things that have happened or witnessed, uh, even if they're things that have happened to other people across the other side of the world that we don't know about. We see the news and the shock hits us. We feel for them. We feel with them. Now, there are, there are those whose sadness... Um, really comes from a clinical depression uh, whose deep sadness is ongoing and doesn't appear to be linked to any particular reason for it, of which there's said to be an epidemic in this country at the moment. And if that's something you uh, face, I truly feel sorry for you and I pray that God will lift this black cloud that hangs over your life But that's not what we're talking about today, just to be clear. We're talking about the normal emotion of sorrow that we all go through from time to time. That might come because we're lonely or because we've been disappointed or because a relationship has ended. Sadness that might come because we've heard terrible news or someone close to us has died. It might come on us when we feel remorse over our actions, uh, ashamed of something that we've thought or said or done that's hurt other people. But, but whatever causes it, we feel down. We're sad. What are we meant to think about feeling like that? Uh, maybe you grew up in a family where you were not allowed to cry, where if you were sad, you got told off or it was a sign of weakness. Maybe that's how you experienced. I went to an all-boys school and you could not be sad uh, or you get bashed. <laughs> uh, is, is that God's opinion? Uh, we might be tempted, uh, particularly after what we looked at last week about joy, where God says rejoice always to think that he's against sadness. Certainly we live in a culture that really has a problem with it and finds it very difficult to deal with and and doesn't know how to respond when it comes. Other cultures don't seem to have nearly so much trouble responding to grief and expressing their emotions. But Westerners, we don't like feeling sad or expressing grief and it makes us and others very uncomfortable. So we tend to, when we're uh, maybe about to be sad, come up with all sorts of strategies to push it away, don't we? Uh, we, we, we don't like sitting with deep emotions, strategies to, to fill in the aching hole within, whether it be drinking our sorrows away, that's what a lot of our culture and contemporaries do, just trying to forget them. Some do it by retail therapy, you know, what makes you feel good? Go and buy a new frock, right? <laughs> just go out and splurge. Uh, we might 
find some happiness and try and distance ourselves and satisfy by, by eating, right? Ice cream, going to the chocolate as a way of distracting ourselves. We might go on an island cruise right after a funeral just to escape the sad realities. When it comes to other people's sorrow, we tend to shut down conversations very quickly where sad things come up or we try and distract the other person or to cheer them up. We might say things like, well, he wouldn't want you to cry. Or don't cry over spilt milk. We have these phrases. And within the church at large, there are even pseudo-Christian teachings that are basically saying the same thing, that God never wants us to be unhappy. It's one of the implications of the prosperity gospel of just name it and claim it. Right? If you're sad, it's because you haven't trusted God enough, you haven't claimed happiness. It's like a, a spiritual cocaine. And you end up with huge churches of people living in unreality and denial that suffering is a normal part even of the Christian life because if you were to admit to someone else in church that something's not good, then you're really saying you don't have enough faith to make the issue go away. And so we gather together for a party atmosphere because... Well, that's, that's real Christian living, isn't it? Which leads to a shallow positivity and fake smiles, as if God wouldn't allow a true Christian to experience anything sad or difficult, which is nonsense, as we saw last week. And while it's possible to have joy in our sufferings, because we know God's with us, we know that he's growing us through the circumstances of life, we know there's a glorious end in sight. Still, there's, it's right to grieve and to feel sad and wail. There are right moments because we live in a fallen world where sin and its consequences reign. And God has not wrapped all that up yet. One day, for sure, yes, Alison's favourite passage in the Bible is that one from... Uh, that's not working. Uh, Uh, We'll come to that one in a minute. Uh, That reading we had from Revelation 21. I I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be them and will be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The one seated on the throne says, look, I'm making everything new. What a day that's going to be, right? (laughs) No more sorrow, no more tears, no more of the things which cause them. But that day is not now. That day is yet to come. We live now in a world of tears and sorrow. Now, you might come back and say, well, why would God allow us to live in a world of sorrow like we are surely if god can make a world in the future where there's no tears and mourning then he should have already done that in fact let's go a step further surely god should have made it so that we never experience tears or sadness or loss in the first place why would a good and powerful god make a world that could have so much misery contained within it now there's lots of things god has to say about that in fact God hasn't answered that question, that's it, right? That's the answer to that question. (laughs) Um, But far more than we can possibly cover today. But here's three things to help us understand why there's pain and sadness in this world now 
and that it won't be until the new heaven and new earth that it will end. Okay, just three, three dot points. First, uh, all pain and misery is caused either directly or indirectly by human evil, right? We cause it. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, there were direct and immediate consequences in the way they turned on each other in their marriage and uh, there was immediate consequences in uh, God's judgment came upon them. Sickness, decay and death entered the world. Second thing, God knew it was all coming and decided to go through with making the world anyway, knowing that sadness would come. He wasn't unaware or ignorant of it. And third, the reason God did that was the end he planned, the new heavens and new earth, is far greater than what he made in the beginning. It's not that we're being restored to Genesis chapter 1. We've got something far better to look forward to than Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's not like heaven is going to be a place where the pain and sadness of this life is going to be removed, where it will be forgotten, right? It will be better because we've come through the suffering and we can look back and say it's no more. Look at the reign of God and the glory and the joy that we have now. The the joy in Revelation 21 in part is because the tears and mourning have been wiped away by God himself, not because they never existed, Jesus on the throne still bears the scars and he's praised for it. You know, praise the lamb who was slain. And there is great joy because of those scars. They aren't forgotten. So sorrow is not something God is intending to remove from us in this life. The tears are going to be wiped away later. But if that's the case, what does God have to teach us about sorrow and sadness now as believers so that we might be wise and know how to live for his glory and even have joy while we're facing sadness and grief of all kinds. Well, the first thing that God wants us to know is uh, about grief is that God himself is not untouched by sorrow. Right? He feels the pain as well. God, who made this world for his own joy and pleasure, experiences sadness himself. In fact, the first emotion that God tells us explicitly that he has in, uh, in the Bible is grief, deep sorrow. It's in Genesis chapter 6. We'll finally get back to the screen. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Right? It very much upset him. Then the Lord said, I'll wipe mankind whom I've created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. God feels sorrow. You can't remove emotions from the Bible when God is a God who feels them, can you? He feels joy. He feels anger, as we'll see next week. He loves and he feels grief. What was it that made him feel such terrible grief so shortly after he'd made us? Well, that mankind, humanity, was so utterly wicked. Every thought, every inclination was only evil all the time. Can you imagine what that would be like to live in, let alone watch 
you see a society, I mean, disintegrating and it's horrific, it's horrible just watching what people do to each other. Being in it's even worse, isn't it? And in his deep grief, the appropriate response that God took was to wipe us off the face of the earth. There's a lot of children's books you can buy on Noah and the Flood, even down at QBD or uh, Demix. Um, but what do they nearly all focus on? The books on Noah. The animals, right? Oh, look at all the animals. Wow, they had giraffes. I wonder where they put them. You know, the elephants, the, the rabbits. They almost never mention what the whole event was about, which was God's sorrow over sin. I guess it doesn't make a good children's story. But this grieving by God over people's sinfulness continues right through the Bible. Uh, Isaiah chapter 63 uh, that is coming up. There you go. Uh, verse 7. No, I don't know what's going on there. Yeah. I will make known the Lord's faithful love. Is that the one? Yes. And the Lord's praiseworthy acts because of all the Lord has done for us. Even the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, which he did for them based on his compassion and the abundance of his faithful love. He said, these are indeed my people, children who will not be disloyal. And he became their saviour. In all of their suffering, he suffered. And the angel of his presence saved them. He redeemed them because of his love and compassion. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of the past. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he became their enemy and fought against them. And these are his people that he's talking about. Israel. God does everything for them. And they turn and grieve his Holy Spirit. Now, if you've got your New Testament glasses on, uh, you might recognise that phrase, grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, anyone know where that comes from? We read it last year we, in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Now, we, we, when we looked at that last year, you, you might recall it's a command that comes in the context of a whole string of commands on how to live as Christians. And so the previous verse reads, No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is useful for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. Humanity grieved God back in Genesis 6. Israel grieved God. And Christians who've been saved by the Lord Jesus, called to a new life, mustn't grieve the Holy Spirit. It's possible to do, but we shouldn't do it. How would we grieve him? How would we sadden him? Well, if we went on in our sin. The Spirit's been given to us as a guarantee of our redemption and we're hurting him by continuing in sinfulness. But there's something that brought God still more grief even than human sinfulness. What could be worse to God than our evil? There's something more horrific, saddening for him. It's the pain that he went through in order to save the world. Sometimes we talk about Jesus' death in purely theoretical terms. I mean, he's a substitute for us. You know, a straight swap, as if he ran on the field and we ran off. 
Uh, we, we might describe how it works for salvation, the mechanics of it. Yeah, but all absolutely true. But we've also got to think of the suffering of Jesus Christ who was full of compassion for the lost, who cried over seeing people like sheep without a shepherd and who mourned over the dreadful state of Israel and Jerusalem. As he approached Jerusalem a week before his death in Luke 19, we read this. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. It's the same city of Jerusalem that back in chapter 13 he had said, maybe, no, yeah, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who uh, are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers his chicks under, uh, under her wings, but you were not willing. So Jesus, full of compassion that led to tears of sorrow at their lostness. And yet the sadness that he felt for them wasn't just helpless. He didn't just sit around and mope when he came to Jerusalem. Right, and, oh, this is so terrible. I don't know what to do. No, he went and did something about it. Not something to distract himself. He didn't go on a shopping spree. He didn't stuff his face with chocolate and play video games to jolly himself along. No, he did something even sadder in order to deal with the issue. In fact, 700 years or so before he came, we, uh, we read this about his coming in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering, or most translations have it, a man of sorrows, who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Uh, some of you know, will know the old hymn by Philip Bliss, Man of Sorrows. Uh, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruin sinners to reclaim. Alleluia, what a saviour. And when he did come to the place where we see Jesus in his greatest sorrow, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, you can read about it in all the Gospels, but here's Mark's version. He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am greatly, deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little further, fell to the ground <clears throat> and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. I mean, Jesus didn't enjoy feeling sad. <clears throat> he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Can you feel the anguish, the agony, the sorrow that he went through knowing that he was going to pay for your sin? Pay for my sin, for which we could not pay. Here is the agony and sadness he went through, knowing the sin of the world would be laid on his innocent shoulders. The sorrow of knowing he would bear the curse of his father, whom, with whom he'd only ever shared perfect unity for eternity. The horrific grief of knowing he was about to be forsaken by the one who'd loved him in perfection because of our sin. Yours are mine. 
but as we saw last week, he paid it anyway. Why? Why did he want to go through such sadness, the saddest thing he ever, that he would ever experience? For the joy set before him. Remember that from Hebrews? Because there would be no joy in the end for him, for his father, for us, if he did not bear the load. So if that's who God is, a God who deeply grieves over sin and its awful consequences, and yet who's prepared to endure still greater sorrow to deal with us in mercy, what's he got to teach us about sorrow and our sorrow? What can we learn about our sadness? Well, the first thing to say is that there's some very good reasons in this world, aren't there, to feel sorrow and grief. There are right things to grieve over and feel sad about, moments to, to, to feel like that. First and foremost, it's right to feel great sorrow over sin and its terrible effects of selfishness. When you see it, whether you're experiencing it yourself or seeing it in other people, it's right to feel sad about it. Broken relationships, death. That's what God mourns and it's perfectly right and normal for us to mourn those things as well. Particularly death. Death is always a sad defeat of life. We Christians might not grieve as those who've got no hope because we believe in the resurrection, but it's still grief to lose someone. Christians grieve and should grieve. Even Jesus, who knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the tomb in just a moment's time, wept. He stood outside the tomb and wept. In fact, the Bible would say to us that avoiding grief and sadness and just trying to distract ourselves and jolly ourselves along and others along all the time is actually the height of foolishness. And so here's the second thing for us to learn about sorrow. We should learn wisdom from it when it comes. Ecclesiastes 7 tells us it's better to go to the house of mourning rather than the house of feasting, for there is wisdom in the house of mourning but there's no wisdom in the cackle of fools. I mean, what wisdom came last week from staying up watching the fireworks? It was good fun. I did it, right? I was there. I stood in Glenfield and watched the Sydney fireworks. They were a long way away, but still brought joy to my heart. <clears throat> it was a good time? Yep, a lot of fun. What wisdom is there from going on flying foxes? That's a lot of fun. <laughs> What wisdom comes from falling off them and spending weeks in hospital? Lots more wisdom from that. Who's ever learned from just falling, from enjoying themselves? But what wisdom comes to you when a family member dies if you let yourself learn from it? So much wisdom. You learn that life is short, you learn it's precious. You learn what is most important is not stuff, but relationships. You learn to care for people, because that's when they need caring for, and you need caring for. You learn how to receive care. You learn to look to God. You learn that eternity is where our joy ultimately is going to be found. You learn sorrow and grief are painful and difficult emotions, but they are great tools that God has given us to grow and to live well in this sinful world under his judgment. The person who's always upbeat and fails to acknowledge their half full glass is cracked and empty 
not only isn't facing reality, but in the end they're completely shallow. And if death is not sad enough, the judgment of God afterwards is sadder still as those without the Lord Jesus face his anger and righteousness unprotected and unforgiven. And so the single greatest thing we can learn in our sorrow is to relate rightly to God. We learn repentance and belief. In 2 Corinthians, Paul reminds the church that he's writing to of the letter he previously written them, which he know caused them great sorrow and pain. He got stuck into them. You can read 1 Corinthians. He really gets stuck into them, doesn't he? Uh, for how wretched and ungodly they were. They were a messed up church full of pride at how incredible they were, how free they were, how rich, how spiritual. But Paul had just taken their legs from under them in all sorts of ways in a series of stinging rebukes. But in 2 Corinthians 7, he reminds them of the good effect that their sorrow had. He says there are two very different types of sorrow that you can have. You can have worldly sorrow or you can have godly sorrow. And they'd had godly sorrow as a result of his letter. Here's verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 7. Well, no, it's verse 8. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it since I saw the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. You see the difference there between uh, worldly sorrow and godly sorrow? Grief is normal. Everyone goes through it. Sadness is normal. Nothing right with the emotion, nothing wrong with the emotion. It's just the emotion. It's not pleasant. And if you had the choice, you wouldn't choose it. But it's one that has great benefit for you if you handle it properly. Or it has great disaster for you if you handle it badly. What does worldly sorrow and grief do? It leads to bitterness. It leads to misery and ultimately leads to death. But on the other hand, godly sorrow leads to repentance and change. So it depends on how you handle the sadness. Godly grief and worldly grief, the difference is what you do with it. There's no fear in Christians suffering sadness. It's not something to be ashamed of or worried about. It's certainly never a failure to be sad over your own sinfulness and shortcomings but it's what you do with that sadness over your sinfulness that really matters. You can use it positively for growth and change. You can use it for the good of others, as Paul did. And you can use it for the glory of Jesus Christ. Or we can be swallowed up by it, wallowing in our own sadness and never changing. Sadness is right and proper godly emotion from which we learn much. So the fourth and final thing to say about our grief and sorrow from the scriptures then is to remind ourselves it's a temporary thing. It's a this world thing. Just as God's sorrow is limited to what happens in this world now, so will ours be. As we heard last week from Isaiah 35, the ransom to the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing crowned with unending joy, 
Joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Why will they flee away? Because God in Revelation 21 is going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And so as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Well, let's wrap up with a couple of implications from all this sadness. Firstly, don't deny your emotions. Uh, Sadness is real and good. It's not something to be avoided or jollied along, but something we need to be able to sit with and learn from. Second, be a good friend to those who are grieving. Don't avoid them. And don't just say, well, cheer up, move on, don't cry. We've got to be able to learn to sit with other people in their emotions. It's okay if we don't know what to say. Just being there. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. It might make us feel uncomfortable, so what? Go do it anyway. Thirdly, don't confuse emotion with the display of emotion and certainly don't confuse emotion with spirituality as if the most spiritual people are those who are the most flamboyant with their emotions, who great grief and demonstrations or, well, they might be you know, flamboyant, but it may be fake. Uh, you, can, you can display great emotion like um, Bob Hawke, the, the crying prime minister, Right? famous ad on the buses for eye drops that he says I took to make me look sad. (laughs) Why was he a crying prime minister? Because he put eye drops in. Because he wanted you to feel sympathy for him. You can have great displays of emotion and not have the real emotion, but also you can have the emotion without having the great displays. And none of it's spiritual. What makes something spiritual or not is what you do with your emotion, whether you learn from the sadness and whether you look to God. That's what counts. And then lastly, as believers, um, in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the man of sorrows, we don't need to distract ourselves with drink, with drugs, or jolly ourselves along all the time with comfort spending and comfort eating, because that's all the world's got. That's why they run to it. But we've got something better to bring joy to our hearts. We've got the promises of God in his gospel In the gospel, that's where we find strength in our grief, light in our darkness and hope and comfort in his saving words. And so when you're sad, when you're grieving, whether it's over loss or your own sinfulness or disappointment or loneliness, do make sure that you look to the Lord Jesus, the one coming in joy to make all things new. Father, we thank you've made us whole people with emotions, uh, even these ones we don't particularly enjoy. Father, when they come, we pray that you would use them to great effect, that we would take them to heart, that we would look to you for comfort, but also we would examine ourselves and see what repentance and change might need to be made. We pray that we would grieve over the things you grieve over and that we would learn to love you and and look forward in hope all the more to the day the Lord Jesus returns. And so help us to comfort those who are mourning and to mourn with them well. Uh, Help us not to flee from them uh, and help us to know what to say in those moments and, and whether just be there 
uh, and what's going to point them towards the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing Man of Sorrows. We might not have sung that for a long time. <laughs> 